We can develop relationships with people where we can be a teacher and we can be a student. I mean, I could go on and on about the different kind of anecdotes and experiences in that supermax prison, but it's really just to highlight the idea that everyone has something to teach us and we have something to teach them if we can let go of that conditioned frame of reference, you know, mostly the, the parent ego state about how a person's supposed to be or ideas about the world. If you can disobey that, then you can really start to see people. You can make connections. Consciousness. The notion of the self. Personality structure. Transactional analysis. Symbiosis. Zen Buddhism. Teacher-student relationships. Training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space. The virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Andrew Archer. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the idea of teacher-student relationships. I think this will be part one of two podcasts on this topic. The idea of teacher-student relationships comes out of Zen Buddhism. And my understanding of teacher-student in terms of Zen is this idea of when you sit down with somebody in an encounter, and Eric Byrne talks about it in his book, What Do You Say?, after you say hello, is from a Zen perspective, you're sitting down with the Buddha himself. And so that brings up a little bit of uh, mental gymnastics, because what would you say if you sat down with the Buddha? And, you know, there's a lot of uh, mythology around who he was. And so it's really more of a a kind of question of how are you going to be? And the, the short answer is you're going to be improvisational and you're going to practice, you know, an ethical orientation in terms of how you're being with somebody. And we can use the personality structure of transactional analysis, the parent, adult, child, like has been talked about in this podcast. The characteristics are the parent is about power conditioning someone, raising a, a child, etc. The adult is possibility. When you're objective and you're mindful in the moment, there are lots of things to pay attention to. And this is where meditation practice um, focuses on the things that are sort of unconscious or we're not consciously aware of. That's possibility. And then the potency of the child ego state is basically our self-narrative, our ideas about who we are, identity, construction, which can sort of be a heaven or a hell. But the idea with the child ego state is that it's how we influence people. So you can think of the personality structure as both a teacher and a student. The parent ego state is about, quote unquote, knowing or knowledge. It's what you know about that all of us know certain things based on our conditioning. I mean, we were trained 
in it in a lot of ways, but there's a teacher there that knows. Uh, it's often prejudicial thinking, subjective and critical, but it can be nurturing. And in a relationship, you can exercise that nurturing aspect of the parent state with the sort of authority of a teacher. You exercise authority, not authority over. And then the child ego state is the student. I mean, if you talk to two or three-year-olds, you ask them the question, they will sincerely say, I don't know. And so it's a kind of I don't know mind state that is really, you know, different from the parent state of always knowing. I know what's going to happen. This thing tends to go this way in every situation like this. This happens, etc. The child ego state is more about creativity and spontaneity based on not knowing. Little kids are interested. They're curious in everything going on. So if you sit down with the Buddha, you would be sitting down with a teacher and a student. And then, of course, you yourself are a teacher and a student. But so much of our culture says there's this solid, separate you. This is who you are. This idea of who you are is reality itself. It's real. And so then you bring this to encounters. And, and what Byrne would say about that is that it's, this is mostly script behavior, adaptive behavior based on our cultural conditioning. So then we have the adult state, which essentially gives us the choice between are we going to be a teacher or are we going to be a student in this situation? And I think one way to introduce this idea of teacher-student relations is with a koan. Koan is a Zen story. It's often paradoxical or enigmatic. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Koan means a public document, uh, literally, the, the translation. Uh, and so it's something that is between a teacher and a student, and it's meant to help wake up the student, achieve enlightenment, or in Japanese it's called satori or nirvana. So there's a, a story about these Dharma brothers. Dharma means the law, uh, but it's essentially the teachings of Buddha is the Dharma. So these two guys, Seppo and Ganto, are studying Buddhism together. And this is in, you know, roughly 900. Um, it's during the Tang Dynasty in China. And so as the story goes, Seppo has never experienced enlightenment, but Ganto has had an enlightenment experience. And they're um, six years apart in age. It doesn't say who's older or younger. But they're snowed in on Turtle Mountain. So let's say they're at a monastery or a temple somewhere, and it's snowing all weekend. They're there for three days. Snow doesn't stop. Now, Seppo, you know, has a lot of relationships. He's a laborer. He's a cook. He works with people. Uh, and that's the background in the story. And Ganto, uh, during this weekend, just mostly sleeps. And so already you can start to understand one of these uh, people is more of a teacher and one is more of a student. So how the, the koan goes, which koan is meant to be uh, you're meant to come up with an answer to it, even though you can't solve it intellectually. 
So it's this paradox, which uh, Zen is all about uh, paradoxes. So Seppo and Ganto are snowed in on Turtle Mountain. It's the third day, and Ganto has mostly slept. But Seppo is practicing Zazen, which is Zen meditation practice, cross-legged sitting. And he's sitting meditation. He's been doing it most of the weekend. So Ganto wakes up, sees Seppo in this, you know, still perfect posture, practicing meditation. And he yells at him and he says, get some sleep. What do you think? You're a roadside shrine? And Seppo says, you know, uh, I'm not at peace with myself. I'm not okay, in a sense. You know, my heart is not right. And he's kind of in this, you know, sort of victim position. He's feeling sorry about himself. And so what Ganto says, and, you know, he's sort of enacting a teacher here, is, don't you know that the family treasure doesn't come in through the gate? And by the gate, he means it's not intellectual. You can't understand it. You can't try and get somewhere with a special practice, you know, making a billboard out of yourself, that kind of thing. He said it comes through your heart, out through your chest, and expands and covers, you know, the the world, the sky, etc. And so when he says this, and he says it in a sort of poignant way, Seppo has an enlightenment experience, which sometimes is described as like a bucket of water, the bottom of the bucket falls out. So everything drops. So when Ganto makes this comment as a teacher, you know, it's power that he uses. Seppo wakes up and he says, Turtle Mountain has finally awakened. And so the story goes that Seppo becomes this great teacher and he has many followers. And when he's asked about it, his teaching and what he's done, he says, well, it's got nothing to do with me. And the understanding of this story is that, well, from the actual cone itself and the writings on it is that, that Seppo has an experience of interdependence, meaning that there's no separation. Uh, there's no independently existing thing that is separate from everything else. And that includes the idea about our, our self. Even though it feels phenomenologically like there's a me in the center of my skull, that that's actually an illusion. Uh, there's no permanency to it. There's nothing static about it. And so when he has that experience, something changes, you know, and it, it in a way becomes, you know, everything that doesn't have to do with him and his personal practice and meditation and he's letting go. And that's the, the water dropping out of the bottom of the, the bucket. And this notion of interdependence, impermanence, these are kind of the, the staples of, of Buddhist practice and understanding. And there's a whole ethical guide to it called the Eightfold Path. The first, um, well, not necessarily the first, but one aspect of that path is right understanding, which is this this illusion of a self, a solid, separate self, um, is just that. It's an illusion. So the, the takeaway from this is that in our relationships, uh, you want to be sort of like Ganto, self-effacing, you know, hanging back, taking it easy, 
not trying so hard to be somebody, but instead, like, what's the right thing to say? What's the right moment to say it? With the idea of waking up the other person it is not by accident that the the story has elements of sleep and enlightenment is that we're when we're self-centered essentially when we're in that adapted part the child ego state the whole world falls away and we're just stuck inside of our head so we need to be woken up meditation practice which maybe we'll get into is a means to do that to understand that we spend so much time thinking about ourselves so that's in kind of illustration of the teacher-student relationships. And, and the two uh, examples I want to give from my personal life about this are, one, teaching meditation in the prison system of Wisconsin, which I'm grateful to have had an opportunity to do that, and now teaching meditation in the community here where I live in Minnesota, specifically with preschool students between ages three and five. So today I would just like to talk briefly about my experience in the prison system. I could spend a whole day talking about the prison industrial complex in the United States, even though the U.S. is only about 5% of the world's population. We have between 22 and 25% of all the prisoners. Everything has become privatized uh, in the prison system, even though crime went down drastically in the 90s. we, we increased prisons all over the world. Actually, where I want to start is I, I met a guy named Dave at a meditation retreat, and he was talking about the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which if you haven't read, read it. The movie's not very good. The, the book's incredible. He was talking about this, this book, and so I went out and read it after he talked about it in these Dharma talks at the retreats. And one of the stats that stuck out with me was that between 1990 and 2005, the U.S. built a new prison, erected a new prison every 10 days within that 15-year period. And that was very much economically and politically driven. It was not to reduce crime. And I mean, it had its connections with the war on drugs and things. So anyway, uh Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, you know, he says in that book that we aren't the worst thing we've ever done in our life, which is kind of emblematic of uh, the prison system as you think they're criminals, you know, they're bad guys, so to speak. Um, And what he talks a lot about in that book is compassion because he's working with people sentenced on death row, most of them. Uh, are not actually guilty of the crimes um, they're, they're, they were convicted with or you know, they were set up or different things. But he said, and I think this is true of going into the prison system, is you have to understand your own brokenness. He uses the metaphor of, you know, a skeleton is a collection of disconnected bones that were all kind of literally broken, were disconnected. And that to understand your own brokenness allows you to have mercy for people that, you know, these these so-called criminals are actually just caught up in, you know, a socio-political process, oftentimes poverty, you know, but adaptive behavior for survival. And then, of course, there's racism and white supremacy. 
within all of that. But think about the child ego state, the potency of the child ego state, that you can have somebody from such a different background, perspective, skin color, sexual orientation, etc., and experience mercy and compassion for that person. And so, you know, back to this teacher-student idea, you know, after I heard this talk by Dave, I just approached him and said, you know, I understand you're going into the prison systems and teaching meditation. I want to do it. <laughs> you know, let me let me do it. Invited myself into the the process. The only requirement was that you had a daily meditation practice, which I had been doing for many years. And so fast forward, I spent some time in a in a minimum security prison near Madison. Then I went out to um, Boscobel, which if you've seen the movie, the documentary series, excuse me, Making a Murderer, um, the, the individual that's um, spotlighted, highlighted in that um, was housed in Boscobel. So Boscobel was set up as a maximum security prison. Um, all of the units in Boscobel are, are essentially solitary confinement units. There's no windows in any of the cells. They're each, um, at least uh, when I was there, each individual was in their own cell. Um, but they had specific, uh, what they call segregated housing or administrative housing, which just really meant the whole. So the people that I would work with had been in solitary con- confinement, some of them over 10 years. And contrary to, you know, probably common understanding, these men were not broken. And some of them had very sophisticated uh, meditation practices, sophisticated insight into the workings of power. Um, But what I experienced uh, going in there, certainly this teacher-student dynamic, but I, I walk in and the very first thing that happens is... You know, I get there in the morning for the first time, and I'm, I'm not listed on the uh, the registry of who's going to be able to come in that day. So you walk in into this kind of breezeway before actually entering into the prison, and it's like a little cell. I said, you know, I'm Andrew Archer. I'm here with the mindfulness group. And the perspective of the guard and basically all the workers there was one of suspicion. It's like, what the f- are you doing here <laughs> basically is the the mentality and that's the whole system they're operating is questioning what are the motives of this person so I, I got just a small again from a privileged position experience of that just that little bit of dose of suspicion and the power dynamics of trying to control people just in that little brief time where i'm kind of pacing in this Breezeway before I got I got in and my other teachers um, arrived with me, but it's very much anger and despair you experience when you go into and leave uh, prison because Boscobel, Wisconsin, is an all white town. But you enter the prison, all the guards are white, uh, but all almost all of the the inmates are people of color, and so. What we did was we went on to the units, the solitary confinement units, and we'd sit in a little room, and the guards would parade in 
these guys in their shackled handcuffs. They have handcuffs around their ankles. They have a padlock on their waist and they bring him in and it's almost impossible to see them as anything other than a criminal. But so what we would do would, would just be to teach them meditation and to get to know them. And, you know, I was very much a sort of student, a kind of apprentice of the other teachers when I went in there, but eventually I started leading meditations and speaking up more. And the, the memories, the images of the men, you know, will never really escape me. It's a profound experience of working with those who are oppressed and different in a sense, but understanding the sameness that they were, you know, literally captured and seized. But, but also the, the idea of ourself is a form of kind of imprisonment and capturing but it takes, you know, it takes exercise practice in terms of adult ego state functioning to see sameness. It's easy to see difference. I was a white guy. Most of them were black. Most of them were older than me. I was younger. Those kinds of things. But to see that we were the same was to get to know them and to have conversations with them, uh, specifically around race and mistreatment. I mean, one kind of anecdote is what we were waiting to go into one of the units one day. There was a door ajar near uh, the entrance to the unit. So it was just a standard-sized door, but because it was open, you could see that there were these little kind of three-by-five note cards on, um, you know, scattered all over this door that included, like, vegan or neutral loaf or, you know, these different needs medication or some random... I can't think of all of the... The different things, but they were used to communicate to the different guards information about the person that was in the cell. So it'd be posted on the outside of the cell. And one of them said, tether to cell. And I said to my friend, Stephen, you know, it says tether to cell. And he said, you know, appropriately, you know, you tether a dog, which means you tie up a dog to the cell, you know, to something or a chain or something like that. And it represents how these guards detached from the humanity of the people, because of course they weren't treating them like humans. They were in cages and they would put on gloves. And so when they took them out of the cell, they wouldn't touch their bodies. And they said to Stephen on one occasion, you know, these guys got diseases from all the drugs they've used. So they were othered. You know, they were different species um, to these guards. And so that's how they were treated. But when we sat down with them, it was just a group of guys in a room learning mindfulness meditation. You know, they didn't have the handcuffs or anything um, like that. We just sat together and we practiced in silence. And so kind of on that note... Uh, we can all get involved in that. We can develop relationships with people where we can be a teacher and we can be a student. I mean, I could go on and on about the different kind of anecdotes and experiences in that supermax uh, prison, but it's really just to highlight the idea that everyone has something to teach us. 
and we have something to teach them if we can let go of that conditioned frame of reference. You know, mostly the the parent ego state about how a person's supposed to be or ideas about the world. If you can disobey that, then you can really start to see people. You can make connections. And that's what we need to do, in my opinion, is to practice Zen, meditation, however you want to think about that. And as soon as you start practicing, you have to start teaching people. Because there's no expert at, at Zen. There's no expert in meditating. Uh, there's just people that do it and people that don't do it. And that might change, you know, on kind of a daily basis. Sometimes you get sick or you don't have time or something happens. I would encourage you to start practicing and perhaps I'll go over in one of the recordings, you know, how to actually practice, but it's very simple because you just don't do anything. You sit there, you don't have headphones in or anything. You're just holding a position, a posture, and you're trying to stay in that adult state, functioning, staying in the moment, not getting caught up in your own head. Um, so the next time I want to talk a little bit about this process of teaching with the very young students and maybe draw some parallels and contrast with the extreme situation where I taught in Boscobel in the prison system. So I'll leave it there. Thanks again for listening. I'm Andrew Archer, the Subversive Therapist.